I am thrilled at today's guest. David Remnick is the uh, acclaimed Pulitzer Prize winning author. Uh, author, not, well, Yes, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author of Lenin's Tomb, but uh, he is also uh, the renowned editor for going on 25 years now of The New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, incre- that's incredible. That, that, that blew me away. Um, the New Yorker has become the country's most honored magazine. They've won 53 awards. It was the first magazine to win a Pulitzer Prize award. Um, it's basically the most honored magazine. He was Ad Ages Editor of the Year twice. Uh, and he's here to talk about uh, the joint venture with uh, Celadon Books, the collaboration of the New Yorker's edition of the January 6th report, which is everything and all you need to know and in, in toto, January 6th. <laughs> More than we, we needed or what not needed to know, everything we need to know. Unfortunately, it's not everything we wanted to know. Uh, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, Donnie. Um, what net, 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 if somebody would wanted the abridged version of the January 6th report. Now, the, the kind of, I'm just going to the top line findings, um, basically obstruction of official proceeding, conspiracy for the nation, conspiracy to make false statements, and obviously the most grave of all, inciting, assisting, aiding, comforting, and insurrection. What If somebody was not following this, as guys like you and I do, what's the net takeaway from the January 6th report as far as you see it? There's many pages in there. I want you to give the abridged version and, sure. and just to, if you're sitting on a train, somebody just came over, they've been, they've been in an igloo, they haven't been paying attention. Break it down. Well, I mean, the, the headline is what, the headline that we always knew, or at least suspected if you were at least inclined to look at the facts in the face, it, it, it resembles, you know, I grew up on movies like Failsafe and Doctor mm-hmm. Strangelove, these kind of political movies where the improbable and the most horrible thing is imagined, right? You know, and what happened here is that the president of the United States, the sitting president of the United States, having lost an election fair and square and pretty decisively, decided that he was going to uh, organize and in a combination of um, very scary terms, but thank God also in Marx Brothers terms. That, that's the, that, that, that is the only redeeming quality, that it was Marx Brothers terms or it would have been successful. Well, it's the only thing that kept us saying. I mean, look, I, I, you mentioned Lenin's tomb very kindly. That book was about the end of the Soviet Union. And um, I experienced a real coup in which the KGB, the head of the military, uh, the head of the Communist Party decided that they were sick of um, Mikhail Gorbachev, the president of the then Soviet Union, and that they enacted a coup d'etat. They locked him up in his vacation house and declared to the country that they were now in charge illegally. And it, the only reason that it failed is for, for two reasons. One, that they, they didn't have the taste for spilling that much blood, which is kind of interesting. They, mm-hmm. they were Stalinists, but uh, Iron, ironic, ironically, but also their capacity um, to carry off this coup was, you know, one part Dostoevsky, one part Groucho yeah. Marx. It was a, yeah. it was a shit show. Um, January 6th um, bore some resemblance to this uh, in the, in the sense that had it been better organized, even more forceful, um, you might have seen the vice president of the United States, the Speaker of the House, kidnapped and killed. Mm-hmm. We came very, very close to that 
catastrophic spect- spectacle, and it was catastrophic enough. And the report, what the report represents to me, Donnie, is just um, countless details. A lot of journalists did a lot of good work between January 6th and the ne- in the coming two years, but they didn't have subpoena power. Uh, they didn't have the capacity to reach down and reach every every one of these sources uh, that Congress did. So I think that Congress did a remarkable job, or this congressional committee did a remarkable job of adding to what was known. Does it astound you? Because it certainly does me. You live in New York. Um, this, you're in the media circles here. You you have Democratic or Republican friends, as I do. How cavalier so many folks on the other side are still about January 6th. Well, it was, you know, it was, it was a protest and it was this and how cavalier they were about how um, fragile and how close we came before January 6th for the democracy. If not for three or four upright citizens in, in Pennsylvania and in a couple of other states, Georgia, it, the, the insurrection would have happened without the insurrection and how so many of my friends, not people I know who are on the Republican side, kind of they don't own it they don't it doesn't it, it's like it didn't seep in well i think it's very painful and there there are many ways a human being can process pain one of them is to just pretend it didn't happen or to minimize it's happening you know i think for a long time certainly when i was much younger and when this country you know was younger the united states to some degree thought it lived outside of history we are blessed by the geography of having two oceans on our east and west and by very fairly friendly neighbors to our north and south. And, you know, we didn't have since the mid 19th century uh, wars on our own territory of any scale. Um, we, we lived certainly after the Second World War in a, in a society of ascending prosperity for most people. Uh, ascending liberty for most people, certainly not all. We we know we know the downsides and mm-hmm. the legacy of racism and all so much else. But I think nine eleven certainly woke this country up to the sense that they lived they they lived in the world. There was a vulnerability to this this incredibly powerful nation that people far weaker. Uh, and de- deciding to want to do damage to the country uh, out of political vengeance and all the rest um, could do it, could do it on a given day. And that woke us up in one part. What's so unbelievable and uh, offensive to our sense of selves is that a sitting president pledged to protect and defend the United States of America would behave like so many dictators in countries that we thought we were better than and superior to. And that was the shock of Trump in, in some measure. And it was certainly the shock of, of, in some measure of January 6th, that we, um, that what separates us um, from success and failure, what separates us from stability and instability is often uh, a far smaller margin than we ever imagined. And this, democratic system that we have, which is imperfect and incomplete and all the rest, is, is, is always in a state of becoming and also in a state of fragility. And we have to recognize that. And if we, that's one of the major lessons, uh, I think, of 
what we've now endured and what the January 6th report makes very plain. As somebody who's been a student of human behavior, and obviously you've followed so many twists and turns in politics, domestic and international, explain to me, this is pre-January 6th, of course, in the election that after four years or five, five or six years of Donald Trump, and we don't have to go through the litany of of atrocities of of, of Trump, (laughs) that four out of 10 Americans put their thumbs up and said, give me more. Now, the first time around, I always explained to people, first of all, Hillary was a terrible candidate. Secondly, you know, it was, let's give the outsider a chance. Maybe he's just saying some things to get elected and, and you know, whatever it is. But four years, sat and watched. And almost half the country said, yeah, that, that works for me. Please explain that to me. Well, I mean, there are some people who will tell you uh, that some part of the reason is that you know, you know all the arguments, Donnie. That some yeah. people will say, "Well, this is, has to do with the white working class's sense of um, instability and vulnerability," sure, and so on. Okay, we know that argument too. But there's also the fact that some enormous percentage of the country is fairly disengaged from politics on a day-to-day basis. They're, they're not <laughs> reading the New York Times and listening to NPR or, or, yeah. or, or th- their media diet is actually um, either uh, nothing or modest or um, yes. and now increasingly distorted. Not the, not the New Yorker demo, let's put it that way. Right. Uh, or the Morning Joe one or whatever. Right, right. And so they are what is politely called in, in political circles um, – uh, what is it called? Modestly educated or low in, low information voters. Low, low information voters. voters, right? And they vote on certain issues every single time, and usually identify with one party or another all the time. My father and mother were Republicans. I'm a Republican. I care about low taxes. I care about public safety, whatever it might be. And they are, you know, so Bob Dole doesn't is not that much different to them initially than Mm -hmm. Donald Trump Mm -hmm. or George Bush or Mm -hmm. that's, that's their team. So there's a lot of people that are like that and on the democratic side of things too. Um, And what's gotten harder and harder in politics, in in politics now in our information age, again, all these are well rehearsed and, and to the point of cliche is that we're all in our media bubbles we're all in our social media bubbles. And if we, we like X, we're going to be served up uh, more of the same. The number of people that go and read and watch and listen and t- with an open mind with the capacity to even change their minds is frightfully low. Yeah, yeah. There's basically 5 or 6% in play every election at this point. Uh, it was always it, the case. I mean, it was yeah. a very rare thing and that had historical reasons when somebody would completely crush the other. Yeah. You know, Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, Walter Mondale, that's a rare, a fairly rare. Nixon McGovern, yeah. It doesn't yeah. really, you know. It used to be when one side strayed too far to the other side. I mean, that was, that was that's the parallel with all of those there, that you had Barry Goldwater, an extremist. You had George McGovern, an extremist. And, and yeah, you know, this country. And also, you know, he was, he had the, it sounds awful to say, but you know, you, the, he was working. Not it wasn't just political or party identification. It was also uh, John Kennedy was a hugely popular president, particularly toward the end of his term, and he was assassinated. And, and Johnson only had a very small period of time, so he was going to win re-election. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, and the yeah. fact that Barry Goldwater was a, even more right wing than the center of his party um, helped make that certain. Let's do a little a little prog- prognostication. Sure. Um, Although I have to tell you, I'm bad at it. So we'll we'll okay. We'll, 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 we're going to go ahead anyway. Okay. You've got a special counsel appointed, uh, appointed by Garland, of yep. course, Smith. Where do you see this playing out? Again, I, you know, I'm not Let's a. Let's caveat that you're not Nostradamus and we got, we got, we got all that. I don't we got see all that. how they don't indict. Yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. I don't see how they don't indict. I don't see how, for all of Merrick Garland's sense of caution, including his not, you know, putting forward a special uh, prosecutor, which is a sign of his caution and care. Yes. Uh, I don't, it's just. How do, you, how do you not? How do you not? How do you not? Sitting president who tries to topple his own government in his behalf, and there's violence as a result. And I just, it's un, unthinkable to me. And what do you think they indict on? Sedition? You, you know, I, I, once again, I'm just, we can just play this out. I, I mean, who better to talk? I mean, nobody obviously has the answer, but I'm just, as somebody who is obviously as, as steeped in this as anybody, I would just love, I'm just, I'm, our audience would love to hear your thoughts. I understand why it's frightening in our political culture to indict, much less to indict for insurrection. But I don't see, and obviously it speaks to my politics and view of the world, I don't see how he is not indictable. By the way, indicting is not convicting. Of course. On all the um, quote unquote charges that the yeah. January 6th committee, which doesn't have the power of indictment, obviously, oh, suggests. Right. I just, I don't see it. Now, I, and so it, it, that's where I am. It's more frightening if they don't. I mean, basically, what we do know in, in history, unanswered aggression breeds more aggression. I, the frightening thing is if they don't, not if they do. And that, that, that like to your point, I feel the same way. You know, will he ever end up in prison? That's another discussion. But as far as the indictment, I don't see, and I don't see how from a pure politics point of view, you want to go down in history as the guy that took a pass on this. Gerald Ford made a political calculation that it would, I think the rationale was that we heal the country to um, pardon Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon's crimes were significant. (laughs) But in comparison. In comparison, I I, I just, I I think that was a mistake by Gerald Ford and it would be trebly a mistake by the Justice Department. I really do. Do you, I've been of the belief, you know, there's obviously nobody's above the law. And I've always said all along, look, and Trump has just been, you know, uh, playing footloose and fancy flu. I've known Trump for 25 years with the law. Any American would be would be indicted based on his tax returns. Our prisons are filled with people yeah, yeah. who did not try to topple the U.S. government. Yeah. Uh, I'm not excusing any of it, but you were, you know, held up a grocery store or, or for petty larceny or whatever. This man tried to topple the government in his favor. I, it, it is a, an immense crime. And I think history will be very unkind to a Justice Department that, in essence, excuses that. We both agree that obviously that they, they they have to, and if not, it would be a tremendous shame and, and a, a blemish in history. I'm asking you about executive branch. Let's say this didn't happen, and all the other stuff 
People who call the ticky-tack stuff, you know, basically inflating values of an asset. I'm talking about pure financial, bookkeeping, white-collar stuff that I know friends that have gone to prison for. And my friend Michael Cohen went to prison for it, okay? Um, do you think a do you think this country worked? What is your take on, okay, with that, what do you do with a sitting president? I mean, with the, with, if, he, if he's convicted? No, no, I'm, I'm saying, would you take all this other stuff, take the insurrection away, take January 6th yeah, away? I, take- I, it's as simple as this. If you committed 20 indictable crimes, I don't see why you're not indicted for them. Just because right. they're separate, just because some of the crimes are, are economic crimes or, you know, screwing around with your properties or cheating on your taxes to a magnificent, whatever it might be, I don't see why <laughs> one excuses the other. Right. I, you know, Donald Trump, there's many, many, many things to say about Donald Trump and to the point where we get sick of it, but we can't get sick of it because we have to, we have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Historically and, and legally, he's so... His, his volume of lying, his volume of illegality, his- Human offenses, the volume of human offenses. And yeah. so daily that people, there's a tendency to throw up your hands. Yeah. At first, it was a tendency to throw up one's hands and say, oh, it's so funny. That yeah. was the initial uh, media uh, uh, reaction in many quarters to that. Oh, he's, you know, people like him and we should take him seriously and- the, the crime wasn't not taking him seriously. The crime was not seeing him for who he was. Yes, he was a great performer. Yes, he drew great crowds. So did Huey Long. Yeah. So did Earl Long. Yeah. Uh, so did um, Mussolini, for that matter. Um, this, his, he's, I think, our system and our and our and history will not forgive us. Or look kindly upon it if we just kind of throw up our hands and let it go. No, can't. It's funny. I have a lot of friends who uh, watch MSNBC. They go, oh, you guys can talk about Trump. And I say, it's not that. Obviously, Trump is, is, is fodder for eyeballs. But you have to. You have to keep looking back. You can't, you can't let the parade pass by. Uh, otherwise, to all your points, we, we, are, we are doing an injustice to who we are, to the history of this country. Question, I want to shift gears a little bit to the Republican Party. I've always said, okay, the only thing that's going to wake them up is losing. They obviously have lost. Uh, they lost, as Trump would say, bigly in the last election, and Trump lost five of the six, five of the six last elections. Right. They, the party has become the party. I've said the party of crazy. I mean, I was just it's, it's just like the party of crazy. Um, what gets them back on track? Is it just one transformational person? Because it's certainly not Ron DeSantis. So what? 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 Or are we living in just the pendulum swing? Or what gets them back in 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 non cuckoo land? So the the, 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 this, the cuckoo land is not a story of Donald Trump. Cuckoo land, mm-hmm. or, or to put it more <laughs> maturely. Elegantly, uh, yes, right. <laughs> is, is a process that's been going on for a generation, right? So um, we, we, we've, seen, we've been watching the radicalization and the, I think, the degradation of the Republican Party you know, since at least the days of the Newt Gingrich revolution, which is a long time ago. Yeah, think about that. That's almost 40 years ago. It's a long time. Newt Gingrich's strategy and tactics were not about um, 
Republican ideology. Um, and by the way, I, 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 you might not like this, but and I, I know, and I know we hear it a lot, but there, in order to draw distinctions, I think sometimes we overvalorize Ronald Reagan. You know, as somebody who watched the Soviet Union, I give Ronald Reagan great credit for recognizing the opportunity. I agree with you. Oh, I agree with you. All, right. war, all that. That's great. But Ronald Reagan also went to, you know, um, played with the ra- played the racist card. Mm. George H. W. Bush, a man that we now regard as somebody of an immense dignity, was not hesitant to do that either uh, in his election campaigns. Everybody picked up on the Southern strategy. I mean, Absolutely. You know, yeah, so, that, yeah. so Richard Nixon, God knows too. So that kept, you know, what's the what's the expression? Um, uh, the the new normal became worse and worse and worse. So then yeah. you wake up and it's and it's Trump is uh, has a glide path to the nomination. How surprising is it? Yeah. Hey, I want to shift gears a little bit to the New Yorker. Uh, great piece on Kehinde Wiley this week. I have a, one of his paintings, so I was happy to see the the. the you do lucky the, you. Yes, you lucky me. I very bought it many years ago for a pittance. So yeah, I was happy to I, I, all the attention. I love it's the painting so, I've done. It's one of his guys, you know, a typical thing. With, you know, uh, it's a, a guy in a Houston Astros jersey. Uh, a, you know, a guy. Uh, I don't want to hear about the Houston Astros. It's yeah, Houston. neither do I. But it's it's a it's it's a gorgeous painting, and it and I love it, and I, I I I'm privileged to live with it. Talk to me about making the sausage. You know, you guys every time you start literally and figuratively from a blank page, and you put this magnificent um, publication out there. Take me through. Day one to when it arrives, how it gets put together. Such a good question because there is no day one. You know, because that's true. Yes, yes, yes. Changed in many ways. I hope its soul and its sense of uh, integrity and uh, fealty to fact and forgive me, beauty is always as is as it was. But there's been one hugely major change that we had a chance to respond to or not, and that's the internet. So the old days of the New Yorker, which you know was three quarters of a century and more, was every week the New Yorker would put out on print in print maybe a dozen pieces and a cover and gag cartoons, and that was hard enough. By the way, my ad, my ad agency when Teeny was there, we did we did some advertising for the New Yorker, so it's an ex client of mine. So uh, well aware. Well, the, and the world of advertising has changed too. We can talk yeah, about yeah, 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 yeah. So, and then along came the internet and we had a, what, so the New York Times where the internet is concerned, it caused all kinds of disruption, all kinds of arguments, debates, what do we do? But essentially a daily newspaper, a news gathering organization like the Times, the Post or whatever, what's online with the exception of some bells and whistles that are now available to it is what the newspaper was, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. faster and more yes. rolling and all right. the rest. For the New Yorker, which specialized in a different kind of pace, different lengths, a different kind of ambition, we had to face like, okay, what do we do with this with this elegant monster called? Which is which all of its essence is counterintuitive to all the benefits of the internet, right? right exactly. Right. What do we do with this car that goes not? 50 miles an hour, but 450 miles an hour at the speed of, or at the speed of light. How do we retain our soul and our sense of accuracy and values 
and remain us. Do we just reject the internet? And, you know, as they say, you know, look history in the face and say, no, thank you. And there were, you know, there are places that did that. Um, they're not, they're not around anymore. Well, they're different and they're not no. as in the center of things. I mean, Harper's to some degree, which you can read it on the internet, but it really didn't respond to the internet no. very much. Um, but on the other hand, I didn't want to be a magazine of daily hot takes Nuggets, yeah. You're never gonna. You were never gonna nuggetize it. Yes. So it, 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 it's a real process, Donnie, and I think we're getting there all the time. And I give enormous credit to the staff and writers who may initially have thought this is not what I signed up for, and then kind of adjusted to it. Saw what the readership was. How could they change? I give enormous to credit to somebody like Mike Luo, who, who's our uh, and, and Monica Rasick, who are the head of the website, who have helped me, quite frankly, expand my understanding of what the possibilities could be so that we can do what we do once a week brilliantly, make that part of the daily flow of things too, and then do other things that we never did before. Never did before. So, And, and we fact check everything online really rigorously. So it, it's harder, but I think if we had said no, we would not have the audience we have, and we would mm-hmm. not be in the center of things the way I think we are now. I'm not in the business anymore, but I hear the ad business is not is not very robust these days. <laughs> Any comment on that? I'm happy to talk about that. So in 1968 or so, when obviously it was a print magazine solely, and the New Yorker had increased and increased its ads because of the post-war boom. Mm-hmm. Right, the New Yorker had to its almost to itself a readership of people that had come back from the war and they're buying houses and liquor and trips and coats and whatever, and it was a certain kind of readership and you know fairly well educated and all the rest. So it was if you got a, an issue of the New Yorker in 1967 in October November, you know, as you're leading up to Christmas, it was you know. Routinely over 150 yeah, pages. Yeah, yeah, that's not our business anymore. I mean, I welcome as much advertising as we can get, um, both online and in the magazine. But at a certain point, we had to change our business because yeah. if we it depended on the old model, we wouldn't be able no, to send be here. No, to no. cover things in Ukraine and pay people decent salaries. So it flipped. It flipped. Yeah. So if if it, if when I got here, our it, our revenue was say seventy eighty percent advertising and twenty percent subscription. Yeah, it's now seventy five percent subscriptions. We basically yeah. said to the reader, "We want to go on doing this. You need to help us, and then we'll get, you're going to you're going to be our partners in this." Exactly. Yeah. And you yeah. know, and now that that's and we're thriving. We've been in the black yeah. for a very long time, and. And there are challenges along the way. This year is going to be complicated because either there is or there isn't a recession and all the yeah. rest. But I, 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 what I wanted most of all was the ability to do what we do. You know, the, the family that we are owned by, the new houses, are, mm-hmm. are um, they believe in The New Yorker. Um, we publish what we want to publish. I never hear from Steve Newhouse in any way. I hated this piece. or Never, never, yeah. ever, ever, ever. Ever, right. Didn't hear from Cy Newhouse in that way either. Um, that is very rare in American journalism. Very rare. And at the same time, um, they had enormous patience 
to to set the boat right when you know times were a little tricky in that transition. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wanted stability. I know you know the New Yorkers. Uh, Business is not the God knows the majority of the new house, uh, uh, but it is an, it is a very important asset in many many ways. I yes. want to be stable. I never wanted us to be a problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've certainly done that. I got to tell you, David, been a big fan for years. I really appreciate you taking the time. The New Yorker's edition, January sixth report, must read for all Americans. Um, it, you, there's no it, it, there's no author in there yet. It reads like somebody's written it it's just it's amazing no what it is it's the january 6th report i wrote a, a, a fairly long preface to give it some context and jamie and Rask- jamie raskin right right a, a very eloquent epilogue so um I, I i i hope people will read it appreciate your time my friend thank you i'll see you on morning joe okay my pleasure don see you there